0: Hello and welcome to Fixing the Future, an IEEE Spectrum podcast, where we look at concrete solutions to some big problems. I'm your host, Stephen Cass, a senior editor at IEEE Spectrum. And before we start, I just want to tell you that you can get the latest coverage from some of Spectrum's most important beats, including AI, climate change, and robotics, by signing up for one of our free newsletters. Just go to spectrum.ieee.org slash newsletters to subscribe. Today, we're going to be talking about making tiny things even tinier so that we can cram ever more computing power onto silicon chips. And to do that, I'm talking with another Spectrumite, senior editor Sam Moore, who covers a semiconductor beat for us like a field effect transistor covering a depletion layer. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Great to be here. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we we'll would often talk about Moore's Law, no relation, uh, on this show and the current state of it. And... How we always seem to be talking about, it's the end of Moore's law and yet, and yet it keeps going. So can you talk a little about what the current state is and and these like new ideas for pushing that boat further down the stream? Sure thing. Uh, Yes, Moore's law is,
1: you know, slowing down. That's a sort of definitive fact. It is getting harder and more expensive to make more transistors uh, on a given area of, of silicon, but it is continuing. Uh, and there's a lot of effort to make that happen. Uh, you know, right now we're sort of around the 200 million transistors per square millimeter range, and uh, I'm going to continue to keep trying to make that smaller. Um, you hear a lot about sort of you know five nanometer node, three nanometer mode, node, and stuff like that. You want to keep in mind that these names actually have nothing to do with the size of stuff on, on things. The five nanometer mode, sorry, the five nanometer node uh chips generally have you know so sort of their smallest uh distance between the wires is 20 to 25 nanometers so it's all just a name but they are going to continue to name new things and make new processes and make things even smaller
0: so what do these names relate to at all then? uh
1: it's historical there was a time when they actually meant something uh that uh that measurement you know the it's called the metal pitch, you know, basically the distance between two wires uh, used to actually be, you know, what they named things after, uh, After, excuse me. Um, but uh, that kind of broke down in the nine, late 90s or so. And so ever since then, it's just been sort of a, a name. And what is it based on? uh sorry so what is it based on now yeah yeah. oh well you know they kept um cutting that and cutting the you know that distance in half and in half again and then they just kind of continued using the you know that sort of division uh for the name (laughs) even though it wasn't actually related to you know the size of things on the transistor it's just
0: like a general we are getting smaller kind of
1: a yeah that's it's just yeah it's just kind of marketing and there's so few companies who can actually you know like do these really really uh cutting edge uh chips so they could call them anything um and and now they are I mean you know tsmc now calls its process uh n five mm-hmm. you know Intel's is like I'm gonna be like, their next generation or the generation after that will be like um a20 I think the a's for angstrom
0: <laughs> you know so so, so for you the real measure though is that one you said earlier which is how many million transistors you're going to get per square yeah. centimeters
1: that's length, really know. what you what matters is just you know how you pack how many you can pack in
0: so in the most recent issue of spectrum we had a, a fantastic feature that you edited um called the moore's law machine about some of these uh efforts to sort of keep uh, moore's law going with this fantastically elaborate elaborate device and this is was written by um uh, Jan van Schut, so perhaps you could take me through this technology, which is called extreme ultraviolet, which sounds like a like a soda I might buy, but yeah, <laughs> sorry. Well,
1: you know, it, they could have called it soft X rays, um, <laughs> but extreme ultraviolet is is definitely cooler. Um, so, extreme ultraviolet lithography is uh, how you make the. Uh, it's the main uh, machine involved uh, in the latest two generations of cutting edge semiconductor chips. So, you know, without it, you wouldn't have, you know, your iPhone 12 through 15, I believe, the NVIDIA H100, that GPU that, that uh, everybody's trying to get their hands on to do their AI, AI, you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't have at least one of the top 10 supercomputers and probably none of the next generation of them. Um, this is the critical machine um, and it is made by one company. Uh, in the Netherlands and it is fantastically complicated. Um, you know, let me sort of tell you first what it does, Mm -hmm. and then I'm just going to give you some, some weird superlatives about it. Um, what, you know, what lithography is, is sort of basically you've got a pattern, um, that you want to project onto the chip that will eventually make all the circuits and transistors and things like that. Um, and, with extreme ultraviolet lithography, you are using a wavelength of light that's only 13 and a half nanometers long. So it's a huge jump from what was used in the previous generation, which was 193 nanometers, which was called like deep ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an enormous jump. It took more than 20 years uh, of R&D to actually like get to a machine that works and that, you know, is vaguely affordable. And when I say vaguely affordable, I really mean vaguely affordable. Each machine is more than a hundred million dollars. It's got a hundred thousand or more components in it. It consumes a megawatt of electricity just so it can deliver a couple of hundred watts of this extreme ultraviolet light onto the, onto the silicon wafer. Um, it thing weighs like hundred and eighty tons. Um, it's I mean it's massive. It's the you know it's like a the current generation is like trailer size. I saw uh, it one of them being put together at a, a fab in upstate New York about five years ago. And it's, you know, it's so big. It's like, everybody looks like an Oompa Loompa. I mean, very, you know, these are, if the Oompa Loompas were like the best in the world at what they did and, you know, the chocolate factory cost a billion dollars. Um, it's just an amazing machine. And the next version of this machine, which is sort of what we're going to talk about today is more than a third larger than today's. So it's just massive, complicated, super expensive. Hard to get your hand on
0: and uh i want to tell you how they actually made it better so um inside this giant trailer machine there's some really like crazy components including you know how they actually make the the these soft x ray slash extreme ultraviolet bleep beams and it involves uh molten metal and uh, like a carbon dioxide laser so
1: yeah it is the most bananas process you you can kind of think of uh so you've got a vacuum chamber and Uh, a little, I don't know what to call it, but it's spitting tiny molten drops of tin. Uh, And they shoot across the vacuum chamber and then you hit that tin with your 40 kilowatt laser. Uh, You blast it into a plasma uh, and then, you know, this plasma glows in all kinds of fantastic colors. Uh, But the optics collect the 13 and a half nanometers that you actually want to use and project it into the guts of the machine itself this really
0: does sound very Willy Willy wonka-ish
1: yeah it does it feels like there should be an easier way to do this but apparently there isn't
0: um so you said so this thing these have things have to be vacuum sealed because this light gets absorbed by the air and what are some like the other like why is this machine so big because it seems like you've got like a little tiny pattern you got little tiny chips okay there's little tiny droplets what like why is it so big (laughs)
1: Well, a lot of it is actually the um the chamber containing the optics which are just insanely precise the mirrors are fantastically expensive these aren't just ordinary mirrors they're you know like multiple layers of alternating exotic stuff uh in order to get you know this kind of uh light to reflect in the right direction you know with any efficiency because you know EUV is absorbed by like tons and tons of stuff uh including air um and uh so a lot of it is just getting the light where it needs to go efficiently you know in without disturbing uh any of the um you know patterns that you actually want to project um and then there's a lot of it that's also just you know handling the wafers um and handling the masks which uh when they're actually sort of in position they got to be you know handled at nanometer precision um so these are like incredibly fine moving
0: machines. So one of the the big challenges, I think that, that she talked about in the article was, yes, you can set this up and you can, you can get the lasers going, the machines going, but your throughput is going to be very, very, very low, like uneconomical for the size of the machine, unless you try a couple of other tricks on top of the, again, molten droplets (laughs) being blasted by a very powerful carbon dioxide laser, which I know I'm hung up on, but it um so so tell me a little bit more about these these other uh tricks sure okay so what um as
1: you as you are a little hung up on you know one of the biggest problems they had to solve just to get to the first generation was to you know make the tin explode in more brilliance so that you could get you know just that couple hundred watts of of light because you know the The dimmer it is this, you know, the longer you have to expose the, uh, the wafer and so, you know, it's all about throughput. You know, that problem is, is basically solved, but, uh, in order to, in order to continue Moore's law, you don't just want this third, you know, you've got this light, but you, but you want to actually keep making smaller and smaller features with this light, uh, to do that, there's, there's three knobs that you can turn. Um, you know, one was the big knob of changing the wavelength. You know, which makes sense. You know, smaller smaller light, better resolution. Totally straightforward. Um, two other knobs. Uh you know, one is kind of difficult to explain. It's a bunch of optical tricks that that you can do, um, which, you know, might include as much as projecting two patterns serially to get one pattern at the end, or just making things look weird so that they look less weird when they get to the into <laughs> the silicon wafer. Um, and I can talk more about that later, but Um, the knob that they are turning with this newest machine that is being currently being built in um, uh, Belgium right now uh, is to increase the numerical aperture. That's the sort of the angle of, you know, the light that uh, you can operate with in in the uh, optical system. Historically, they've turned all three knobs. Um, Numerical aperture is one that actually gives you a really good return uh, historically. And so, uh, they really wanted to to do this. They've got you know they're right around 13 and a half nanometer resolution now. But if they want want to dip down below, they're going to have to do a high numerical aperture, extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography. This causes a cascade of problems when you're designing the system, though. Okay, it's it's a very you know this machine is already fantastically complicated. Um, but as with any optics, you tweak something here, it's going to have some other effect later on. So let me go through the cascade of the problems that they had to solve <laughs> in order to make high NA uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography. Okay, so first, you want the numerical aperture increase like at the wafer itself. Right, that's where you where you'll get the resolution. But that means you also have to increase it at the mask. Now the mask is where you um, is sort of where you store the pattern. So you bounce the light off the mask and goes through the optics and then it lands on the on the silicon wafer and that's your point um here's the thing so uh you know you got to bounce the, the light onto the wafer sorry onto the mask and then off of the mask and here's where you have sort of a ghostbusters moment those two streams can't cross um you think bad things will happen <laughs> it would be bad i think is fine right <laughs> um so you can't cross the streams so that means you have to angle them away from each other okay but you can't angle them away from each other too much because these mirrors these really specialized mirrors only work up to about 11 degrees and you you know in order to just if you just wanted to do this like you know without any adjustments you'd need 18 degrees so then they're like okay well now we've got to solve we're going to need this angle there's no getting around it um so the way they solved it was by increasing the demagnification which I know sounds kind of increasing a D, but basically it's shrinking stuff down, okay? Um, A lot, like, you know, they increased it by like eightfold or something like that. Um, So like, okay, hey, problem solved, but not really. Uh, Because now your pattern on the wafer is really small. It's like a postage stamp instead of, not your pattern, sorry, The, the amount of wafer that you can, that you can, you know, project onto all at once, super small. It's like, a postage, a postage stamp, and that means that you have to do more postage stamps, which means that your Because
0: these wafers you, are large.
1: These wafers are, yeah, they are 300 millimeters across, um, and, you know, so dinner plate size or so. Uh, and so if you can only do a little bit at a time, it's going to take you longer to do a wafer, and then it, it basically becomes so expensive it's not even worth it. So... They had to they had to solve that problem by doing something kind of weird uh it was sort of a like kind of funhouse mirror effects um, basically they uh, increased the magnification in only one direction so they came up with these specialized mirrors that kind of would stretch things out <laughs> and shrink them, uh, yeah. And it was it had weird effects. I mean, you have to you actually have to make the mask stretched out so like the pattern that it's on the mask is is kind of this funhouse mirror version of what you want on the wafer. Um, but amazingly, that actually does it. Um, you still wind up with a little bit smaller than you'd like uh, of a uh, projection onto the wafer, but it's acceptable as long as you increase the acceleration of how fast things are moving through the, through the machine. So what did that, five problems to solve?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But this effect, it sounds a little bit like in the old days before we all had widescreen, flat screen TVs, when they would sometimes when you were trying to be showing like a a cinema, cinema movie on a TV, Mm -hmm. and suddenly the aspect rate would get really weird and distorted because they were having to squeeze in on one Mm -hmm. axis. To, to make it all fit, like especially when the credits would roll and would get all <laughs> distorted in one direction. And that, that kind of reminds me of that. But these are big machines and you've done some other reporting though on some of the sort of the the side effects of handling these big machines, which is how to how to operate them in a more sort of environmentally friendly way. And that was uh, the work of this company called, I think, Edwards uh, in England. So can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so um, you remember how I said everything has to happen in a vacuum on the inside of this? Kind of, sort of not. Uh, there is a very small sort of flow of high, I mean, sorry, it seems like a small flow of hydrogen, but it's a really big machine. So it's actually 600 liters per, <laughs> per minute. Um, but, uh, this hydrogen is, is there for a couple of reasons. There's, you know, it, uh, everything in there is super delicate. You don't want anything to get on the mirrors, uh, or on the mask or anything like that, but you are blasting molten tin in a chamber. Uh, and you have other chemicals that are involved in, uh, in chip making and stuff like that, and you need to kind of sweep them away. Um, and so that's what this hydrogen is for. And you think, oh, Hey, hydrogen, that's green. Not yet. Actually, most hydrogen is actually not made in any green process. It's made, uh, it's actually made by, uh, a chemical reaction between water and methane, Mm -hmm. um, so not great. Um. And 600 standard liters per minute is actually kind of a lot. What they're doing with it currently is they just, you know, burn it because you just get water and all of the nasties that it's picked up just kind of, you know, falls out, and that's.
0: And so, so I'm I, I envisioning kind of a, a smokestack at the side with a flame on top, and it's <laughs> you know, more willow Wonky. But yeah, okay. So they they're just burning off the hydrogen, <laughs> right? To, to, right. But you know that's
1: super wasteful. Um, so what Edwards w- worked on was a system that can recycle the uh the hydrogen and it's actually pretty cool it's like a reverse um fuel cell kind of um you know the used hydrogen and it's you know the com- the icky components that it's picked up along the way basically go through one side uh get ionized then um an electric field sort of forces those protons um through uh, a proton exchange membrane they come out membrane excuse me they come out the other side uh, recombine with uh with electrons you get pure hydrogen to go back into your process and all the awful stuff stays on that the other side hmm. yeah so um it's actually it works pretty good they did they they set one up at um, a uh, nanoscience research uh, organization called imec which is kind of a, a key european research um, house and uh, it managed to recycle 70 to 80 percent of uh of the hydrogen in their uh in their UV machine so now they just have to convince you know the the big chip makers to adopt it as well
0: so with, with all of these technologies and I, and I want to turn to a to a sort of a a, a competing technology in a moment but for for these technologies how long do you think it'll be before we see chips in our smartphones and our computers made with this new technology right with a high na
1: um uv things that are made in 2025 will probably start to uh at least the chips themselves will be made in 2025 it takes, you know, months after that for them to be in systems, but, you know, that's probably in time for yet another NVIDIA H, uh, GPU. Um, you know, so these are, AI is driving a lot of the demand for particularly this, like, this most cutting edge. Um, and so I'd expect to see it in sort of the generation of AI chips from better, sort of made in 2025, 26. Also, Apple is always... At the cutting edge they always want the the most uh you know the newest chip manufacturing techniques so whenever iphone <laughs> comes out in the latter half of the century will almost certainly
0: uh involve this so and that's actually a perfect segue because you mentioned nvidia there and nvidia mm-hmm. is uh looking at an enabling another approach to squeezing things down and keeping um, Moore's law um, moving along, which is inverse lithography. So can you right. tell me a little bit about and why the fact that it's an AI company is like work works out for well for them because they're a chip maker who that happens to make like the AI chips. Right.
1: Um, so, uh, let me sort of give us a little more context since you, you started. Um, so, Nvidia actually, like you know, they design the you know the most. In-demand AI chip in the world, everybody wants their hands on on an H100. It's just the current generation. The manufacturer of that chip, though, you know, they NVIDIA designs it. It's manufactured by TSMC, which, frankly, kind of dominates the uh, the world of the most cutting-edge um, uh, chips right now. So they work closely together now because uh, NVIDIA is probably one of their biggest customers. So if we if you can kind of go back for a second, remember I told you about those three knobs you can turn to make you know to make lithography better to make your precision mm-hmm. uh, you know um, and your resolution better. One of those knobs was this weird one called K one. It was sort of the process stuff that you can do. So what NVIDIA has done is it's made one of those process stuff that you can do uh, <laughs> um, much easier to compute. Okay, it's um, a technique called inverse lithography. Um, and here's the thing. It's like, if you, you might think that if you wanted to project, say like a plus sign, something that was shaped like a plus mm-hmm. sign onto a silicon wafer, you you know, on your mask, you put mm-hmm. a plus, and then you get a smaller plus mm-hmm. when it got to the, uh, the silicon and not the case. Um, there's enough, uh, distortions and other just stuff that you have to worry about, um, optically when you're dealing with, you know, this kind of, um, you know, operation below you know, the, the wavelength of light that you're using, that you have to do things like add little like sort of dog ears at the end of the plus sign to make it look like a plus when it gets there. Those uh, things have be- had to be progressively more complicated um, as, you know, we've kind of driven Moore's law, you know, to its limits. So, you know, now that plus sign would actually sort of look like, you know, if you put it in a kaleidoscope and kind of turned it, it's just this this mass of, of weird stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that you have to put on the mask. Uh, in order to get your simple plus sign at the wafer. Um, now, it's those are those tricks are actually kind of really hard to do um, computationally. So you know, it's the idea that like, okay, if I want this plus on the wafer, what do I have to have on the mask? And it's so computationally difficult that we're talking like weeks of just you know, we've got a massive you know a massive computer and it's going to just sit there for a couple of weeks and try to figure out what that uh you know what that shape should be uh what nvidia has done is it's turned that it's come up with a system that turned that two weeks into an overnight job um you know a thing that and you know the thing that was that it, it used to be it used to be a job for cpus it was i guess my guess is it was instructionally complicated enough that it was not sort of inherently um you know of parallel nature that gpus were on so NVIDIA did a lot of work, um, and came up with algorithms that are, you know, just perfectly fitted to a GPU. And so, you know, basically, um, they did in the work, sorry, what would have taken 40,000 CPUs, mm-hmm. uh, they did with 500 mm-hmm. GPUs and two weeks versus
0: mm-hmm.
1: overnight, which is actually a, you know, that's, that's huge. That means, you know, that's a, eliminates a big bottleneck in, um, you know, getting your chip to market for one mm-hmm. thing, um, it allows you to use this this really computationally tech expensive technique uh, in more places. You know, mm-hmm. rather than reserving it for like the spots of the chip that were just really difficult. Um, and you know, from the perspective of it, of uh, in an environmental benefit, um, it's five megawatts of of power in the computing system versus thirty five megawatts, mm-hmm. which is you know, not insubstantial. Um, so, yeah, this is a, a thing that they, um, this uh, computational lithography system, it's uh, called uh, Q Litho. Uh, they introduced it, uh, I think, uh, in the early summer or late spring. And they've got Synopsys, one of the uh, electronic design automation companies, bought, bought in. TSMC has been working on it with them. And of course, ASML, which makes the UV machine in question. Um, and all the other lithography machine equipment, um, they're, they're signed on as well. So, uh, it should really be making a difference both
0: environmentally and in terms of getting chips done faster. So, so just to wrap up, we've been talking about I love technologies that are actually very close to being deployed. Um, is there anything you're seeing like in the lab that's further out that might help us like in the 2030s Basically, It's, uh,
1: there's no clear answer to whether there'll be sort of another, um, wavelength of light that we use and it seems kind of unlikely actually you know even you know 13 and a half nanometers is not that many atoms of material when you get down to it so um our ability to sort of shrink things down in two dimensions is getting it really is getting towards the end and so um transistor architecture is starting to go 3d or rather in the lab it's starting to go 3d but this seems like the the path that everyone has chosen. So now we're, um, you know, there's a new kind of transistor. Uh, I believe Samsung started uh, uh, using it in production last year, maybe TSMC this year. I might have those wrong, but they're both well into this new structure. It's called the NanoSheet. Uh, and Intel is moving to it um, the end of 2024. And the thing about the nano sheet is that it's um, sort of conducive to making a, second transistor right on top of it Mm. so instead of trying to squeeze things together you know in two dimensions we're going to start adding layers Mm. um in addition to you know just you know at the transistor level making it 3d we've already got um you know quite a lot of work going on right now and quite a lot of um you know production chips that involve 3d packaging which is just you know making one one chip and stacking it on top of another um, in order to kind of make a super chip. Um, And that's happening now and uh, in production production chips. So, um, yeah, the future is uh, three-dimensional.
0: Well, that was fantastic, Sam. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure, Stephen, as always. (laughs) Um, So, today we were talking with Sam Moore, senior editor at IEEE Spectrum, about extreme ultraviolet and other technologies to uh, keep transistors getting ever smaller on computer chips. For IEEE Spectrum, I'm Stephen Cass, and I hope you see us next time on Fixing the Future.